Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I did count. This is week eight of our 16-week sermon series. So we are now exactly halfway through. And we've seen some themes being established even in those first eight sermons that we've talked about, those 16 verses that summarize the Bible, the story of the Bible and God's plan of salvation. Today we want to zero in again on this idea of kingdom. What it means that God has provided for us a kingdom and a king who reigns forever. In the text that we're going to look at today from 2 Samuel, we see God's promise made to a king, King David, about a king, our Savior Jesus. This whole section in 2 Samuel 7 is about building. David has a desire to build the Lord a temple. And maybe that shouldn't surprise us when we think about building. So I have some questions for you today. How many of you were Lego users when, well, even still now maybe, or played with Legos? Okay, quite a few. Okay, I'm gonna show how dated I am. Any Lincoln Log players out there? Some people remember those? Okay, Tinker Toys? Okay, we still have some of those too, nice. Okay, now we're gonna make it a little bit more modern. How many Minecraft players do we have out there? Okay, we have some of those. Roblox, anyone of those? Okay, maybe if you don't know what those are, that's okay. It's, they're, they're relative, they're computer games where you do the building on the computer. You remember making cushion forts in your house with the furniture? How about sandcastles, either in your own sandbox or when you went to the beach? Do you see, we just have this innate desire, it seems, to build to build something. And even if you don't have any architecture or engineering genes in you, this desire to leave something behind, to make a legacy, that's something that has traveled through all of human history. Maybe just a few examples this morning. I suppose I could have taken all kinds of examples from around the world, but I wanted to get some ones that I thought maybe you'd be able to identify pretty easily. Anybody know? Those two tall buildings at almost 1,500 feet. The Petronas Towers from Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. Okay, this one. The Taj Mahal in India, Agra, India. I know some people here that have actually been there. Okay, how about this next one? The Sydney Opera House. This one, every time I see a picture of it now, I think of Finding Nemo and I want the sound. You remember the sound from Finding Nemo? Oh, you don't remember that? From the, okay, every time they show it's in the opera house, yeah. All right, some quicker ones. Recognize the pyramids of Giza, probably. The Eiffel Tower in Paris. And then back home, the Empire State Building. And then on the lower right, I still call it the Sears Tower, but I'm pretty sure it's the Willis Tower now, right? Aren't we just scratching the surface of buildings all around the world? that have been made as a marvel of architecture and engineering, of human effort. So this idea that David wanted to build a temple for God shouldn't surprise us. Maybe what's surprising from this section of scripture isn't what David wanted to do, but what God wanted to do. Not so much what David set out to do, but what God promised David instead. That's going to be our focus today as we look at these two verses from 2 Samuel chapter 7. God is establishing a kingdom forever. And as we look at the story, we want to note two things. 
First of all, though David's plan may have been a very good one, God sometimes has different plans than our own. And then secondly, what God made to David was a covenant. A covenant promise that echoes down through the centuries and brings assurance to you and to me today. David wanted to build the Lord a temple, but, but maybe we have to back up just a little bit to understand how did David get to this point where he was reigning as king over Israel and wanting to build this temple. If you'd like to read about this this week, it starts in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and runs all the way through this story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But David was not the first king of Israel. That distinction went to King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you've been here throughout our first eight weeks, you might remember that Benjamin was not the tribe that God promised that there would be a scepter that wouldn't depart. Perhaps you recall that that was the tribe of Judah. Well, when Saul rejected God, then God rejected Saul and, and told Samuel to go and anoint the next king, this time going right to the heart of the tribe of Judah, the town of Bethlehem, to the family of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and the eighth of those sons, the youngest of those sons, was David. And it was David whom Samuel secretly anointed to be the next king in Israel. The next thing we read about is David showing up on the battlefield to take on the Philistine champion, Goliath, that nine-foot giant that David took down with a sling and some stones. From that point forward, God's favor rested on David. He won military battles. He was protected from those who wanted to take his life and ultimately, when Saul died, David rose to power. It took some time for David to consolidate that power in his kingdom and establish his capital in Jerusalem. But suddenly, as chapter 7 starts, David finds himself in a place that he had not been for the majority of his life. A place without battles, a time of peace. And he looked around and he said to himself, well, this isn't right. Here I am, he says, living in a house of cedar, while God is living in a tent. David's desire was to make something permanent for God. He wanted to build a house for the Lord, a temple. You see, up until this time, the people of Israel had been worshiping God, and God's presence had been among them through the tabernacle, that moving tent that would go with the Israelites wherever they went. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? It sure seems like David's desire to build the Lord a temple, a house, was a very, very noble desire, a very noble task. Even the prophet Nathan, when he hears about David's plan, says to David, go ahead and do what you want to do because the Lord is with you. That was David's plan to build a house for God. Did David have an understanding that, that this desire that God has to dwell with his people go, went all the way back to creation? When he built his kingdom and then brought Adam and Eve into that creation? Did David's desire to build this temple for the Lord and have God dwell among his people, was that David's way of saying, Lord, is this how you're going to restore your kingdom? 
But God's plan was different than David's plan. God's plan was not to have David build the temple, but someone else. Here's the amazing thing about God's plans in comparison to human plans. David's plan was big. If you want to read about the temple that David planned out and that Solomon executed, you can read in 1 Kings to see some of the ornateness of that temple that was built. A huge plan. A plan for God to live among his people. A plan to have a place for the people of Israel to worship. To worship. But if David thought big, God's plans were much bigger. God wasn't interested only in a house of worship for the people of Israel, but a place for all nations, for you and for me and for all people to worship. That's why God changed David's plans. Again, there's no reason for us to think that David's idea about building this temple was anything but noble. And yet underlying that idea of building something is a spiritual issue that every single person has. There's this idea that's born in us, that we can do something, that we can help God along, that somehow our efforts, our works, our good deeds will make God take notice and pat us on the back and say, yep, that's why I chose you. Maybe you've even heard this statement, God helps those who help themselves. Sounds kind of good at first, doesn't it? You probably recognize that that statement, on the basis of the words of Scripture, is completely false. See, God doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me to contribute to our salvation. He doesn't need our human effort to make perfect what he's already done. As a matter of fact, Scripture demonstrates to us over and over again that if human beings try to contribute to God's plan in any way, it can only fail. Think about Abraham. As he and Sarah patiently waited for God to give them that son through whom all nations would be blessed. You remember what they did? Took matters into their own hands. David, or David, Abraham had a child through his maidservant. That was not God's plan. Or think about Moses. When he recognized that God had called him to something amazing, he saw an Egyptian and an Israelite fighting. Moses rushed to the rescue, killed the Egyptian, and yet realized it wasn't quite yet time for God's plan to be fulfilled. Here's what's amazing, and I love the statement on the board because this is scripturally accurate. God helps those who can't help themselves. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way in his letter to the Romans. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's plan, his bigger purpose. That's what he wants for you and me, to recognize the salvation that is ours, not in what we can do and what we can build, but in what he has already built for us through Jesus. It's exactly what God is talking about in our text for today, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne 
of his kingdom forever. As we take a look at those verses, we see God's plan coming to the forefront. And God's plan meant a no to David's direct request. I want to build a house for God, and God said, no, you will not be the one who will build the house for me. Nobody likes to be told no. And I can't imagine that that was a joyful thing at first for David either. But it didn't take long for David to recognize that God's no meant he had something even better in store. Even in those two verses, and Vicar read for us the first 16 verses of that chapter before, you can see that God has a much higher purpose, much greater blessings in store for David. He wants to establish a kingdom not just in David's name, but a kingdom that's going to last forever. Here's where we see a unique feature of some prophecies of the Old Testament. They can have both an immediate fulfillment and then a fulfillment that happens a little bit later. The immediate fulfillment to this prophecy, the son who is going to reign on David's throne and build the temple, 1 Kings tells us very clearly that son was Solomon. Solomon built the temple. Solomon dedicated that temple, and when he dedicated the temple, the presence of the Lord came and filled the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8 would tell you about that. But if you know a little bit about Solomon's life, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that he is not the one who has the kind of life that is going to redeem all people. So who could this secondary fulfillment be talking about? Who is this future person that is alluded to in this promise to David? Isn't the key found in the word forever? I will establish his throne forever? Who else could that possibly be talking about other than God himself? Jesus, the Messiah who would come, who would establish this royal dynasty that would carry on, not David's name so much, but God's purpose in establishing a kingdom for all people, for you and for me. You see, the stark contrast between what David wanted and what God wanted should bring great comfort to you and me today as well. That human desire is to build something for God, to think that somehow we can give God something that will please him. But that's not God's desire. God's desire is to build something for us. God's desire is to bring into this world a Messiah who will take away sins, not just a few sins, but every single sin. And God delivered on that promise through Jesus. Maybe just a little sidelight here to talk about this idea of God saying no. Again, probably initially didn't make David very happy to hear God's no, you're not going to be the one to build a temple. And maybe as we read that story, as you've been thinking about it through the course of this sermon, you've thought to yourself, you know, there have been some times that my prayers have been answered no. You remember those times? Of course you do. Those times you prayed for something that you thought would be helpful to you, helpful to your life, helpful to your family, helpful to your church, helpful to your service to God. And the answer seemed to come back, no. 
How do we deal with that as God's people? How, how do we handle it when God says no to our direct requests, even when we think there are things like David's was that are very, very noble? You see how God's no turned into something even better for David? And that's something you and I can trust too. If God loved us so much that he was willing to not spare his own son, then he will also, along with him, graciously give us all things. God wants what is best for you. And so if his direct answer to a request that you have is no, you can trust that the God who loves you so much that he died for you also has what's best in mind for you in your life. I want to just review, just for a couple moments, the themes that all come together in this one promise. This promise to David that a king is going to reign on his throne forever. These themes we've seen throughout the first eight weeks of our sermon series. And the first one we'll talk just briefly about is this idea, again, of kingdom. That God established a kingdom at creation, that he invited human beings to live in that creation. When God made promises through Jacob, specifically to the tribe of Judah, he again established that there would be a kingdom that a scepter would not depart from Judah. And now here it's all pulled together. As we've gone from Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Judah, and now specifically to the line of David, and this king that will reign forever. Another concept that seems to run all the way through scripture is this idea of special offspring, or seeds, descendants. We heard about the very first promise of this in Genesis chapter 3, that a, a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Abraham was promised that through his seed, through his offspring, all nations on earth would be blessed. Now again, we hear to David that one of his descendants, one of his offspring, was going to be the one that was going to reign forever. And then this third concept, the idea of covenant. The promises of God's grace, promises that God makes that he's going to carry out, that he's going to fulfill, trace all the way through the stories that we've seen. To Adam and Eve, that there would be redemption from the sin that they had fallen into, that there would be someone to come and overturn Satan's damage. To Abraham, again, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And here, David is the recipient of that same covenant, a covenant of God's grace that said, through your offspring, there will be a kingdom established forever. Maybe David was disappointed for a short time, but if we would keep reading in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7, it's pretty amazing David's reaction. Instead of wallowing in self-pity, David rejoiced. He actually asks this question of God as he's giving thanks to him. He says, is this the way that you usually deal with people in terms of of such grace, so many promises, so many good things that you've offered to me and to all people? And of course, God's answer to that would be yes. That's what these promises are all about. That's what tracing this plan of salvation as we've done it throughout the course of our summer sermon series is meant to highlight. It's the highlight for you and for me, God's grace, that when God promises something, when God makes a covenant with you and with me, he carries it out. He does what he said he's going to do. And you know it because you know that Jesus has come. You know that Jesus offered his life for you. You know that Jesus left his tomb empty and that you are forgiven 
and an heir of an eternal life because of him. What can we do but rejoice? Rejoice that this faithful God who made a promise way back in the Garden of Eden has carried out that promise and has brought it to completion. Now is waiting to take us to our kingdom, our home with him forever in heaven. I love this passage from Ephesians as the Apostle Paul writes about marveling about all the things that God can do for us. He writes this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Some takeaways from our sermon today. Number one, our desire to build something for God is replaced by what God has built for us. There is no pressure on you. There's no pressure for you to live up to the standard of holiness that God demands because Jesus already built that for you. He already lived that perfection for you. Secondly, when God's plans are different than ours, his plans are always better. So if God says no to something you pray for, don't sweat it. Don't panic. Look, when God closes a door, he usually opens another one. He's directing your life in another path because he has your best interests in mind. And finally, number three, we are part of Jesus' kingdom and approach our God with confidence in prayer. The king, the one who reigns forever, he invites you to bring all of your requests to him. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Think about what it would be like for all of us to take a trip over to England to show up in London at Buckingham Palace and let the guards know we'd like to have an audience with the Queen. We have some things to ask her. I'm going to guess that you're not getting in to see the Queen. And neither am I. As a matter of fact, they might even take a little bit seriously the idea that we thought we could get there and maybe we'd end up being arrested. Think about that. When you think about how inaccessible royalty is in our world today, but how accessible your king is. The king of kings, the forever king, the one whose kingdom will never end. He not only wants you to come to him, he invites you to do so. To call upon him in your day of trouble. He'll deliver you and you will honor him. We sang it before as John played, what a friend we have in Jesus, to take it to the Lord in prayer. Your king, the one who gave his life for you, stands ready to listen to your requests. He's guiding you home to live with him in his eternal kingdom forever. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.